Hebrews chapter 12. Last week, we were looking at the heroes of faith in chapter 11. And um, Lito went through um, what faith was and the various examples that we have. And so, effectively, um, when we get to chapter 12... He's going to refer to them now to then lead on to a further discussion. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So we've got this imagery um, and this is not, hey, there's a big blue sky and there's one little puffy white cloud. This is like a big storm cloud coming over, that sort of cloud. And so what he's referring to is this, look at all these people that went before you. They are your witnesses. Witnesses to what? Well, what was he talking about in the previous chapter? Faith in God. In times of trouble, they trusted God. And so, when you as Christians now are coming to the point where um, you're having a bit of a hard time, what do we do? Well, look what all these people did. They trusted in God. By the way, you can trust in God when you're not having a hard time, but quite often that's where the, um, as they say, the rubber hits the road. That's when life becomes difficult, when things don't go according to plan. And so, and, and notice the witness there is actually in the, like in the legal sense. They're like in a court and here are the people giving evidence and that's what he's referring to from that great group of people um, that we talked about in chapter 11. And notice as well, um, and he does this in other places, we're using again the imagery of a race Um, and as soon as they start talking about races, I start thinking Olympics. But, Think of Christianity as a race. And in that race, we have to run it. And so, when you think back to these people, um, and you know how examples we have in um, the Olympics? Kathy Freeman was one who came to mind, won a gold medal in athletics, which like in Australia was like, what? We don't win gold in athletics. But she became an example, a motivation to others. And again, that's that same sort of idea um, of the witnesses that he's been referring to. So run the race that they ran, the way they ran it. But it's not just a matter of running. Um, It has this idea of endurance. And the, the idea behind this is one who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose. 
In other words, that sort of single-mindedness. I've got to get to the end of the race. Um, and I, I love the, um, the imagery that one writer had was, you don't start a marathon with an overcoat on. And this idea of lose all these superfluous things we don't need to run the race. Like you don't get the Harry Potter robes and put them on. You don't get the life jacket, though if you're in the police force you do have to run with some of this stuff. But the rest of us, we don't sit there. We get the lightest clothes we can, we put them on and then we run. And I've only run six kilometre races in my youth. Um, But no, I didn't wear the big hobnail boots. I wore runners. And so when he starts talking about putting off the things that weigh us down, that's that sort of idea. What's going to get in the way of me running this race? And he lists a couple of things. He says, first of all, sin. The idea of sin that's going to ensnare us. But then he says other weights that are going to slow you down. Things that are going to get in the way of your race of faith. And there's a couple of examples um, from Scripture that I just thought I'd throw in at this point. Um, for the rich young ruler, it was his money. That got in the way. All right? Not that it was sinful in itself, but it became something that distracted him from the race. Simon the sorcerer. He was a man who was confronted with Christianity and what he saw was, oh, look at the influence that these guys are having. That's what I want. Again, something that distracts you from the real thing that is sitting underneath. When he refers to that looking to Jesus, the idea is to turn your eyes from other things and then fix on Jesus. So we would, we would say sort of turn, but it's turn and fixate on Jesus. Why? Because he's the one who is, and they use the word author, um, and in a sense leading to what we've had in chapter 11, that idea of the chief witness, if you want, of his life of faith, but also the creator of the faith that we're following, as well as the perfecter, the one that makes it complete, that carries it through to perfection. So in, in two ways, Jesus is... Um, both that creator of our faith, but also, um, again, an example to us of how he lived it. Because Christ lived it sinlessly. And as Peter has already alluded to this morning in this chapter, we have this, and um, it reminds me very much of Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has, which also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So you have this idea of this was Jesus. He was up there. He came down, gave it all up, for what? The great thing of going and dying on a cross. No, 
That was the means. That wasn't the thing. What's the joy that he's talking about? That salvation, that offering up, that perfect sacrifice for sin. And he endured the cross to do that and now has been exalted back on the right hand of God. So that's the reason why he did it. That's the joy that came from it, not the actual um, cross itself. So the cross was something he endured as part of that. Consequently then, when he turns around and says, consider Jesus who endured hostility from sinners. Why? So that you too endure. So we don't give up the first time life gets hard. Because you're going to encounter hostility. If they gave Jesus a hard time, why would you think you get an easy time? Okay? And the idea though is, yes, this is like Jesus enduring the cross. He put up with it because of what came after. That's what we focus on. That's the enduring. We're looking not at the things that are happening right now, but the thing that is to come. Otherwise, we're going to become discouraged. We're going to become weak. And that weakness has that idea of almost sickness that goes along with it. And remember, um, part of the, the discussion, well, the majority of the discussion of the book is aiming at Christians who are thinking of going back to the Mosaic Law. So don't give up. Keep going with the faith that you've been delivered rather than reverting back to something that won't do anything for you. And it doesn't have to be the Mosaic Law to draw us away. When we talk about our own running the race, anything that we put our trust in other than God, looking for salvation via this means or that means or making life easy via that means, anything like that, the idea is we put that off because that's not going to get us there. And look, the world has more options than you can poke a stick at um, as to things that they will offer you as alternatives. Starting, okay, into verse 4. And no, I will speed up. Um, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin and have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now putting aside the the implications for us on child raising... Oops, it's gone too far. Um, For those who like Greek, there's some Greek stuff in there. Um, The word I want to focus on, particularly in the Greek thing, is the idea of chastening. It is the idea of training a child. So it includes the, um, the discipline side of it, but it's more than that. Okay. And it can include, um, as the word has meaning in there, uh, not that I'm advocating scourging of children um, in any way, shape or form, but that's the sort of range of meaning of, of the words that are discussed in here. But the point is, you guys have not yet 
resisted to bloodshed. That's where he's calling us to. Alright? You don't give up at the easy bits. You don't give up when it gets a little bit hard. You strive, you keep going, like Jesus did, even to the point where he was crucified on the cross. That's the sort of extent that he's calling us to with dealing with sin, putting off the things of the world. And Jesus triumphed. Then he goes on to quote in um, Proverbs chapter 3. And the idea is not that um, this stuff is all worthless, it's just stuff that we've got to put up with. But he uh, relates it back to the idea of chastening or training. And that um, in this process something is supposed to come out of it. It's not just a matter of random things happen to us. The idea is that we are being trained, we are being moulded into the type of people we ought to be by the hardships and the other things that are coming our way. So they're not worthless. And it's not the first passage that talks about that. But in here he also uses it as an example because he refers to what we experienced, well, what I experienced growing up. And that was, we were chastened by our Father. We were trained, we were disciplined, we were corrected um, by our Father. And we treated and respected them. And the idea of that, that same respect that is due earthly fathers, well, when God trains and disciplines you, he also deserves that. And so, and notice here as well, he's saying, he speaks to us as sons. God loves the sons, and in here it's just using the analogy of the passage, so daughters are included. He chastens them. If you don't get chastened, then you're illegitimate. You are not the children of God. Therefore, endure these difficulties. Learn from them. Be trained and moulded by God and give God the respect that he deserves through this because he's doing it for your benefit. Endure the persecutions. Endure the hard times. Endure the suffering. And this is not the first book that talks about this. There are a number of books. Count it all joy when you endure tribulations. It's not, oh, mumble grumble, I've got to go through this again. But, it's good for me. God is training me. And that's the sort of attitude, particularly in James, that he's calling to. And in here, he's just appealing to us as to understand the process. Understand why God is doing it. He's doing it because he loves us. And he wants what's best for us. Okay. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. And again, I've talked about this so I'm not going to go through that in detail. But notice as well, chastening is short. It's for a few days and then there's benefits from it. It's not fun. Neither from whom, who used to love getting told off by their parents? Not a single hand. It's not fun, but it's the result that we look for. Those peaceable fruits of righteousness, as long as we endure it. And there was a number of things that went through my mind as I was thinking about this. Um, when, when you're running a long race, you get to about the halfway point and your, your arms start to... And as you get closer to the finish line, your, your enthusiasm starts to pick up. Well, that's what it used to be with me. Um, but the idea is uh, don't give up at that point. When things start to um, hang down and the enthusiasm starts to drop, what do we do? Restore and reinvigorate ourselves. And don't make life hard. That idea of um, clear a path so that you don't stumble or become lame. In other words, the um, put a limb out of joint is the idea of that dislocate. Rather, when life is tough and you're suffering, make it so that you can be healed. And again, think back to what he was talking about earlier. You don't run a race with an overcoat on. Lose the overcoat. Make life easy. Deal with the sin. Don't leave it hanging over you, constantly causing you to stumble. Get rid of it. Deal with it. Learn to put it off. That way... You can keep going, you can be reinvigorated, you can be healed rather than be injured worse. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, causing trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profound person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards when he wanted the inheritance to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought diligently with tears. So that idea of pursue peace and holiness with all, be constantly seeking after it. And it's not just about me. Look for those who are falling back. Look for those who are sort of dragging the feet, keeping with a race analogy. Don't let bitterness 
and things like that spring up, but look back to them, help them along, bring them along too. As it says in Ephesians chapter 4, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as, uh, even as God in Christ forgave you. Replacing those bitterness and stuff with that tender-hearted and forgiving nature. And don't be like Esau, who threw the towel in because it was convenient at that time. He was hungry. Poor didums. He wanted some food. And therefore he gave up his whole inheritance to get a pot of food. But, in that moment of silliness, he then lost his inheritance and he couldn't get it back. And so the idea is is appealing. Don't make the same mistake. Don't take the easy path just because it's convenient. Because there may not be any going back after that. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sounds of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Again, pictures from their history. This is from Exodus chapter 19, um, and I'm not going to read through that. Go, it's sort of summarizing sections of um, that part in Exodus. But this is when they're standing before Mount Sinai, the cloud, the gods speaking, and they're terrified of the mountain. And he's saying, that's not what we've come to. You know, where you're all excluded and only Moses and Aaron can come up. But what have we come to? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an immutable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to that blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And again, we've got this comparison, this ongoing theme that's going through Hebrews. We don't come to the big scary mountain. We come to the new Mount Zion, the living place of the church, the city of God, where the angels, those who are... um, the church of the firstborn, to God and to Jesus, the mediator. It's a bit slow to change. See that you, that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if we did not escape who refused him, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are being shaken, as the things that are being made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And in here, again, we have that idea of the temporary and the permanent. God is shaking things up. And what's going to be left is the permanent. Those things that he has spoken of. And he's going to get rid of the temporary. And then there is also the warning. If those who ignored the human messengers got punished, think about what happens for those who ignore the godly messenger. And again, that reference to what was before and now. And yet something better now, and if you ignore that, what will be the result? Because the things that you're appealing to won't be there. You think about, even for us, what does he promise about this world? All the things that people put their trust in, in this world... It's not going to be there. It's the things that are shaken and stay. That's what you should be putting your hope in. So our kingdom, the thing that we're looking forward to, that are the things that can't be shaken. Therefore, we're to have grace. The same way that God has shown us grace, we are to be showing grace as well. Serving God then with that reverence and that godly fear. And the things that people forget when they talk about God is love, on the other hand, God is also a consuming fire. So, punishment to those who then reject, to those who um, don't look to Jesus. Because if you go, and, and remember this is again in context of going back to the old, The old is gone and therefore don't go that way, particularly for that Hebrew um, um, audience. 